You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Carlos Valdez de Pena. He is Managing Principal of Corporate Collaboration Resources. We're going to talk to him about what does it really mean to have a high-performance team that is really collaborating. And we're going to talk about the work that he does. We're going to talk about the knowledge he has and really what goes into that. And I think a lot of people you know, have made lots of efforts in different ways to build teams and increase collaboration and communication. You know, and when it really comes down to what really works and what doesn't work, that's what we're going to talk about today. With that, Carlos, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So before we kind of get into this world of teamwork and team performance and collaboration, give us a little bit of your background. How did you get into this? What were you doing professionally? Give us the backstory. Like a lot of people who ended up doing what they love doing, I stumbled into it. I'm not one of those people who knew in high school, like my daughter, who (laughs) always knew she'd go into economics and to this day is doing that. I had no clue. I thought I wanted to be an actor. I thought I wanted to be a professor, which part of me me still wishes for that. (laughs) Um, But I, I found my way into this organizational consulting field after trying my hand In the theater, I worked in the hospitality industry for a number of years, front of house mostly, doing doorman, bellman kind of jobs, thinking maybe I could switch tracks. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out. I got into the photography industry for about 10 years where I learned, I I think of that as my MBA, my unofficial MBA, the 10 years I spent in a growing stock photo agency back in the... Well, back more decades ago than I care to admit right now. (laughs) Suffice it to say, there was no internet. You couldn't get photography by just logging on and doing a a search, right? Yeah, that was a game changer. (laughs) Yes, it was. And it certainly changed the industry that that I I was part of starting up with under the leadership of some very smart people. But anyway, I learned a lot about business there. Then I went into training and development. I got hired by a consultancy that delivered training programs, manager executive training programs. I was able to exercise some of those theater muscles, getting up and teaching people that evolved into consulting. I spent a couple of years with IBM doing leadership consulting as an internal executive coach for them in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And then I moved over to Mars Incorporated in 2000, where I was an internal org effectiveness consultant. And in around 2009, 2010, started focusing my effort on working with leadership teams. Mars, I don't know if your listeners are aware is today, I think, about 120,000 people, if not more. Yeah, they're, they're huge. A, oh, they're gigantic, yeah. right? But they, And they've got most the segment most people know about is the confectionery. Yeah, the candy bars. Yeah. Right, candy bars, gum. They own Wrigley's. They have a very big pet care and pet food business. They own a number of marquee brands, IAMS, Nutro, Greenies, plus veterinary health. They own okay. Vet Clinics of America, VCA, Banfield, uh, Blue really? Pearl. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a number of smaller operations, 
outside the U.S., and they're continuing to grow in that field. So very complex organization. My assignment was to go provide leadership and team expertise to some of the smaller business units that couldn't afford the external consultants. Mm-hmm. So I was on staff, so use me. Yeah. Um, and so it's I flew around the free. world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, I, I had to charge them for my time, but yeah. I was cross-charging myself at much lower rates than the available yeah. collaboration experts out there. I'm sure. And what that did was give me just a, a massive pool of data on these teams. So I always yeah. conducted interviews, did surveys with them, and a mass treasure trove of fascinating info about these teams. And eventually I was able to mine that data and land on a framework for collaboration that was based on research I did into it. So that's how I ended up here. I continue to work with teams to this day. It remains my primary focus and a, and a true passion of mine. I love it. Yeah. Although I never, I never planned to land here. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of us, a lot of us in various industries that didn't necessarily plan and ending up where we are. And, I, you know, I'm curious, you mentioned that you had an opportunity to work with lots of teams, collect lots of data. What data do you actually collect and, and how did you collect it and why was it important for you? So I'm working in the realm of the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, somebody actually referred to me the other day as a social scientist. I was honored to be so labeled. <laughs> uh, so it's largely qualitative data. And as you know, doing things like personality surveys, you can quantify the soft stuff, right? By asking people yeah. to say, on a scale of one to five, how do you feel about this, right? Yeah. So I ask, I will ask both kinds of questions. I'll give surveys that use what we call a Likert scale. That's one of those five or six point scales you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll also ask open-ended questions. I just finished a wor- work with a very senior team of Mars scientists. And I asked each team member three questions. Think about the way this team of senior scientists is working today. What's, what do you need to continue doing? What should you stop doing? And what do you need to start doing? Okay. I just let them talk. And then I do content analysis tech on that text, right? I go in and I do, I, I, I'll use AI if it's a big enough task, yeah. but I'm doing some sentiment analysis, looking for themes across the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, we, I share it back with the team. This is not meant for me and the, the team leader. This is meant for the team to have a picture of itself okay. in a moment in time, how, how it feels about itself, what it's doing, and therefore what it might need to change. And then I help them construct ways to go about changing those things. Yeah. Interesting. And how, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, like how, how do you actually analyze that data? I mean, cause you may, you talk about tagging it and things like that, but like, mm-hmm. how, how do you take this fairly raw, unstructured, uh, anecdotal, you know, kind of narrative data and turn it into something that you can actually like do kind of a quantitative analysis of at some level. Tell me if I'm not answering your question. The first thing I do is I have to break it apart into discrete citations. Okay. So this last piece of work I did with this team of senior scientists, I had ended up with 164 discrete citations. These are subject-specific sentences or phrases, things that, that have a certain coherence to them. Got so it. here's a person talking about, this team needs this, and somebody else saying, this team needs to start doing this other kind of thing, and the words that surround. So I break mm-hmm. them into disc- what I call discrete citations. It's been too many years since I got out of grad school. I don't remember the technical <laughs> terms. Uh, once I do that, so first thing I do, actually, before that, I actually, if, I, if I'm using an AI platform of some kind, something simple, I don't get terribly sophisticated about this, I'll run it and see if it tells me anything about word frequency, right? Mm-hmm. Relevance of these terms, some a little bit of sentiment analysis, though I find I'm not having much luck with that these days. So I break it into, in discrete citations after that, and then I, I classify each of these citations. I, I, I formulate, or sometimes the AI does, labels. Okay. So this is about... Uh, clarity of 
goals. This is about the way team members are behaving. This is the way, this is about the structure of the team. This is about the way the team fits into the larger organization. I'll create 10, 12 buckets or labels. Each one of these gets tagged with a label. And then we start counting. We start looking. And then I start doing positive analysis of whether it's a neutral statement, a statement of strength, or a statement of of weakness or opportunity. So then, Mm -hmm. then we get some some sense of someone saying, wow, this works really well, or this is not working, right? Or it is what it is. So I do a number of different kinds of analysis, but it all begins by breaking it down into, into these labeling these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start to say, how many of these in this bucket are there? And how strong is the sentiment in this, in this bucket? Is the sentiment largely positive or is it largely negative, mm-hmm. right? And I will share back the metadata with the team, how many citations, how many labels, where the emotion tended to be in each of these categories, whether more positive, more negative, or more neutral. And then they'll get a chance to dig into the data. I actually share the citations with them. I usually don't share all of it. I share representative samples. And I ask them to start formulating hypotheses about why things are this way. So that's how I prefer to work. Yeah. Are you developing correlations between these things? Like people that tended to say this kind of stuff also tended to say this kind of stuff or tend to be at this role or of this tenure or things like that? Yes, I will do that. Uh, It depends. But generally, yes, I'll do some additional analysis on the areas where I think the team will be interested. So, for example, this last thing I did, I had both team members um, in my data set and I had stakeholders and I had to be able to differentiate which yeah. was it a team member or a stakeholder who said it? Were stakeholders in general more positive or more negative? Were team members more positive or more negative about this sort of thing? And then I do tag. So I also want to make sure that if if I have four comments about how dreadful a team's meetings are, that they come from one person. So I give there are unique identifiers. I take names out Got and it. I give everybody a number. Yeah. They're never going to see this stuff. This is just for me, so it doesn't bias my work. Was it one person saying these four strongly worded things or is it four different people saying it right that stuff matters yeah. uh, and in places where the emotions get particularly strong where the the sentiment is strong i always make sure i i tease out that sort of deeper level of data just so when people say wow that's there are four statements here that make us sound like we're just dreadful and i can say you know what in fact that was just one person who happened to be either a team member or a stakeholder giving voice to their feelings so you shouldn't Consider those four statements Over, to in any way. Yeah, sure. yeah, don't overweight those. That's one person's opinion broken down into four different discrete topics, if you will. So I do look at that sort of thing. I I, I studied social science. I studied org development. I have a master's in I have a master's in theater first, <laughs> where where you do a lot of text analysis actually yeah. because you yeah. you can't do a play without understanding that. But my master of science in OD taught me how to do these things. It's been years since I had a proper. A professor looking over my shoulder saying, oh, this is exactly how you do this analysis yeah, or that yeah. analysis. I, I just try to anticipate what I think team members will be curious about and do a little deeper dive in those areas. And it varies from team to team. Yeah. So you, you, you do the analysis, you collect the data, you do the analysis, present it back to the team. What do they do with it? And how, how do you help facilitate the process of, of helping them digest this and come up with actions? So I think my favorite task, the, the thing I like to do best, and I think the thing I'm best at is design. I design workshops which are really sequences of structured conversations Mm -hmm. um, where we address the questions that come out of the data, 
By the way, in this case, the data included not only interviews with team members and stakeholders, but also document reviews. Others, others in the past had looked at this particular function, had asked questions about its role in the organization. Did it need to exist? If it did, what should it look like? So I, I had a document review as well. So the first thing we'll do is we'll do a little, what I might call old school team building in terms of the design. It always starts with connecting people at a human level. Who are you? Who, who am I? What am I about? What's something interesting about me that you don't know in that realm? And maybe mm-hmm. sometimes we'll use personality instruments and talk about your style and my style. Mm-hmm. That in a workshop of eight to 16 hours done over two to four days, we usually start with at least an hour of just settling in and getting, getting connected to each other as yeah. human beings. Once that's done, we then move into the thing they're most curious about is what did you learn from the data? So we start there. Now, push the pause button. I will have reached some conclusions based on my analysis of the data, right? I will have some hunches about what I think this team needs to do, and I will construct a, I'll design this workshop so that it is steering us towards addressing some fundamental team issues, things that are, that I know this team probably needs to think about because of what the data say, right? And I will, sh- I will be very upfront with teams and say, I've got my impressions from your data. I'm going to share your data with you now. Yeah. And I'm going to give you all everything I know about it, including my conclusions. And I want you to talk about it, which is a, okay. which is really the riskiest thing I do because you never know what they're going to say. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I will have shared my conclusions with the leader of the team. And most rationally, yeah, prior to the meeting, we'll make sure that the leader knows what we're seeing, that he or she understands the direction I think the team ought to be taking with this workshop time, the issues Mm -hmm. we ought to be addressing. And they also know that the team is going to have a pass at this. And I'm going to ask them to look at this data and ask them what they think of my conclusions and to challenge me. And I'm very open to that. And in fact, this session we did just last week, it was two four hour sessions over two days. We completely rewrote the agenda on day two, which didn't surprise me. Because of one insightful recommendation a team member made on day one. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to go there because the team, these are smart people, all of them, whether they're scientists or finance people or HR folks, none of them's dumb. They're all in leadership positions, right? Yeah. Uh, and you give them a, a set of decently understood data and ask them to to draw some conclusions. They'll almost always go somewhere fresh and interesting. And uh, so I, I, we leave space for that. And I always make my let my client know up front. I'll give you a design, and it'll be solid, but also recognize that what comes up in the moment we have to we have to deal with. Yeah, and it might be a great opportunity. Right, there might be something right. in there that's that's actually. So that chunk, we do the data bit, right? And then mm-hmm. typically there's going to be one big issue that we need to take head on, as was the case with this team, and we'll, we'll work that and becomes a part of day two. Usually we then work the issue in day two. Yeah. You know, we then say, okay, so we know that this team, for example, had no, it had been formed, and but no one had ever really understood why. There were some high-level philosophical reasons for why this yeah. team had been formed. It was cross it was a large company across many different parts of the organization. So it was cross-functional, but it was all scientists. So they were coming from various parts of the organization, but they didn't really understand what they were supposed to produce. They didn't know who they were <laughs> yeah. accountable to or what the outcome was anybody was looking for. Yeah, what does success look like? Yeah, what does success look like? And, and you know, my, so let's pause for a minute. My basic definition of a high-performing group, high 
high-performing collaboration, and I like to make a distinction between team and collaboration. Yeah. High-performing collaboration creates value for the organization, for the individuals in the team, and for the team itself, for the relationships and the, 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 that entity you call the team. Yeah. You know it's high-performance when it meets that triple bottom line, creating value at all three levels, for individuals, for the group, and for the organization. And this team had no clue how it was supposed to do any of those things. They felt no value individually because the organization yeah. didn't know what it wanted. And then by extension, the team was like, they'd get together and be called a team, but they weren't yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll tackle those issues and uh, let them make some conclusions. And it, it used to be we'd go off site for three days back before the apocalypse. Yeah. Right. We don't do that anymore now. And so we end up with, unfortunately, with open en- open-ended things with, with yeah. open switches that we have to come back and close. But we've, we've adapted, all of us. Yeah. And what do you notice across all the work that you've done with teams? I mean, what what are the things that, that are common amongst high-performing teams that are common amongst teams that are not high-performing? And, and how do you address these? Or, or what are the things people can do to improve their team collaboration? The first thing you need to ask yourself is, it, we're a group, let's just say for a moment, on the org chart somewhere, right? The org chart mm-hmm. has declared that we're a bunch of people who all report into one person, agnostic of function. Most people would look at that org chart, the boxes, the lines, and say, that's a, in quotation marks, that's a team. All right, fine. There are some very smart people who would say, well, there are real teams, and then there are just groups, and you need to know the difference. What I have learned is that most leaders I talk to don't care for me saying that their team isn't a real team (laughs) because there isn't sufficient interdependence. I've had too many of those conversations where I was trying to use all my good social science knowledge And they were saying, look, this is my team. Stop telling me it's not a team. Okay, I got it. So look at that collection of people and ask yourself, where do we need to collaborate and where do we not need to collaborate? Some people will talk about levels of interdependence. It's similar, but to me, there is an important difference. Interdependence suggests that you and I require something of each other, right? We have Mm -hmm. a dependency upon one another. Collaboration is actually about working together, co-creation, Okay. So look at your team and ask yourself, where do we need as a team to co-create? Where do we need to be, if you will, a real team? I hate the term, but I'll mm-hmm. use it. Right? What, what work, what specific work requires all of us to gather around it and do it? Which work requires the collaboration of subsets of this team? And which work requires almost no collaboration? In other words, smart individuals who we've hired because of their capabilities and intellect could do this work. Obviously, you need to report it to the correct people and connect it to other streams of work, but they could be done largely by individuals. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself that question and then start saying, so if that's the case, let's say there are three things where we need to collaborate as a team. Then start to build your team efforts around the specific work that actually requires the total team to collaborate. So one of the mistakes people make is we talk about the team and teamwork in very generic, broad ways. Be a good team player. You need you need to have a team attitude. I need to know I can count on you as one of the team. That's not helping me understand what I actually need to do. Yeah. Right? It's more about mindset and attitude when we talk in that general way. I'm talking about we want to be strong collaborators that produce better results because we bring ourselves together around the stuff where it matters. In fact, I have this little slogan, collaborate better by collaborating less. Mm on only those things where it makes the biggest difference. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, a concentration strategy, right? Like fo- yeah. focus 
focus your time and effort on those things that really need that collaborative energy. Let brilliant individuals go for brilliant individuals. And we should be putting posters up about brilliant individuals, right? (laughs) Just like we do about teams. Yeah. Yeah, that actually sort of takes care of itself. There's in, in Western style companies, there's kind of a hero culture anyway, right? Yeah. There's always the one person who wants to take credit. So that sort of handles itself. Yeah. But people aren't thinking critically enough about what requires collaboration and what doesn't, and then using their resources accordingly. Yeah. So do you find that 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 companies tend to over focus on collaboration or or tend to yeah, feel that right. too much work needs to be collaborative when it really doesn't? Well, I think that's that's there were a couple of articles that came out probably four or five years ago now and that use the term over collaboration where we try to get everybody to be a team about everything because gosh darn it that's what good teams do we're always there for each other <laughs> what we're not saying is how often we end up tripping over each other when we behave in that yeah. way so there is there is a tendency to default to team and that creates confusion i used some terminology earlier te- attitudes mindsets Again, that those things don't address the actual work that needs doing. So I, I would say organizations tend to assume they need, in big quotation marks, teamwork without thinking critically about where it's going to make the biggest difference. I don't know if it's overdone. Uh, I think some organizations probably over-focus on individuals, right? over-index okay. in that focus, and underestimate the need for collaboration. But I see more of the opposite. At Mars, it was certainly the case where I did my research. Everybody kept talking team, the posters on the wall, the town hall yeah. meetings, the, the performance management conversations about being a team player and being one of the team without anybody ever getting specific about what actually required it. And yeah. all, all that does is confuse people yeah. and distract yeah. them perhaps from what they really need to be doing. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I've certainly been a part of you know various efforts at various companies, uh, you know, whether I'm working with them for them, you know, that are sort of team building exercises, yeah. and you know, whether it's uh, you know escape the room or rock climbing or you know these these various activities that we do that yeah. are supposed to promote team development. So, I mean, I guess how many of these things actually work? What really goes into an initiative that act, that will actually move the needle on these things? What what does it entail? Give us a sense on, on what you found in terms of uh, kind of effectiveness. So I'd ask your listeners to go to Google, uh, stop wasting money on team building. It was my first article I had published in hbr.org. It's been my experience, and I think the data support me, and I've, I've worked with academics on this problem as well, that most so-called team building does not yield sustainable improvements in collaborative capability. Yeah. It doesn't. It's fun. And people, look, there is a social aspect to work that we cannot ignore, that we must, in fact, attend to and foster. We want people to get comfortable around each other. But getting comfortable around each other is not the same as collaborating. An example, this comes from my life. Uh, My wife and I have been married for 33 years, I guess, this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And we we are comfortable with each other, as one will be after any number of years. But we learned a lesson that we should never, ever try to wallpaper a room together. (laughs) I mean, it was ugly. (laughs) The epithets that were flying... We're, yeah. and, and, and we had, at one point we just stopped and started laughing at ourselves yeah. because <laughs> we, we weren't going to collaborate on this successfully. It wasn't going to happen yeah. no matter how comfortable we were with each other. Mm. And that's a bit extreme, but even at work, that's true. You can be super comfortable with someone and just not be a good work partner. Now you have to, because, because you can't assume that social comfort or relationship or familiarity breeds yeah. collaboration. It, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. In fact, the opposite is usually the case. In other words, if you and I get assigned some piece of work to do together, 
And it's tough and it's challenging. And for whatever reason, we're smart enough to sit down and plan with each other and think about how you can bring your strengths to this and how I can bring mine and how we can be aware of where you're not so good. And same for me. And we're really clever about it in the ways that I work with teams on. By the end of that project, we're going to have gotten to know each other in a very profound way. Mm -hmm. And we'll have built a kind of trust that you don't build any other way. You can do all the trust falls or ropes courses in the world. And when you've been in the trenches with somebody, that's when you start to understand who they are and, and whether or not you can trust them. And this comes from my interviews of when I was writing my first book with, with members of the Marine Corps, right? Yeah. And you know, wh- where do they build trust? In live fire exercises, yeah. right? I don't know if you've been in the military or not, but uh, no, no. I, I've studied the SEALs. I've been at West Point. I've been out at the SEAL base in San Diego. I've talked to Marines. It's a lot about practice. It's what you practice with others that leads to stronger relationships, whether you're practicing it in re- simulated real situations or you're doing it in real time. That's, that's where you get your greatest trust building. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are worried about trust. It's a big deal. It's one of the questions most people in the team building space are asked to deal with. But most of the things we do in pursuit of trust building don't deliver sustainable outcomes. And is that because they're not, they're not related to the work that's actually, yep, you that, nailed that the it. trust can, can, can well, yeah. get needed in? Yeah. They're not. And just because I trust you as my spouse, or I trust you as the person who yeah. sits two desks over, I was working with a group of finance people right now who, their team's in terrible shape, functionally, right? It's not yeah. working well together. The mechanics of it are not right. But they trust each other. The trust is not the issue. They're, they're all professionals. They get it. They, they have yeah. respect for each other, and they, they seem to trust each other in a conceptual way. Yeah. But the team is not working well together, and we're not going to be able to build trust until we help them figure out how they can work more effectively together on the things that they need to be together on. And I, also, I'm not a big fan of building trust where you don't need it. I, it may sound cynical, but if you and I are reporting to the same boss— and I'm mm-hmm. working on one raft of projects, and you're working on another raft of projects, and we really aren't crossing paths, let's not spend tens of thousands of dollars on a, a fancy team-building exercise with you and me, because it's, it's not, it's not going to benefit anybody, right? It, it, yeah, so, it, what, so then what, what is, not to get too uh, philosophical about it, then what is trust, right? Because I think that right. like, it's an interesting point, because it's like, like, I don't need to trust you because I have other things around the the process or the situation or the context that I can rely upon that I don't right. need that trust, but then some cases I do. What What is that trust? It depends what context you're talking in, right? So some people talk about trust in leadership, organization, at the, like the organizational level. Good article I came across today. What do you have to do to build trust in leadership in an organization? That's a kind of trust. The kind of trust I deal with at the level of a team is somewhat more intimate, because yeah. I'm with you every day or I'm working with you regularly. It's not about trusting your proclamations about where the business is going or trust that you will lead the business in the right way. It's trusting that you'll do what you say you're going to do. I think Edgar Schein, at one point, the, the great academic thinker about culture and organizations, I think he's the one who, who promotes the idea that trust is the ability to, to predict what someone else will do. If yeah. you feel you can reliably predict what they're going to do, you, you trust them because you know what's what's coming, right? <laughs> that could go either way. <laughs> right? Um, for me, and, and there's another flavor of trust in teams that we have to talk about, which is trusting your intentions. Yeah? yeah. Um, do I trust you have my best interests at heart? Mm-hmm. Right? That if you're acting in ways that will not harm me. Like, it's related to the predictability idea, but it's, it, yeah. it is different. 
And this comes into play when you've got tension in teams, where team members feel like they need to give each other feedback. Can I trust you to give me feedback that's accurate and about my growth, not about putting me down and, t- and, yeah. and stealing my thunder, right? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that because for me, that's where trust really is a matter of, of, I sometimes say the most important person to trust in a team is yourself. Yeah. Why? Because if you're having an issue with your colleague and you feel like you have to give them feedback and you're worried that they're going to get angry at you, take it badly. Mm-hmm. If you trust yourself enough to engage with them, regardless of what fears you may have about what may happen, you will be able to give that feedback. You will have, it's Brene Brown talks about this as, as courage, right? Yeah. Do you have the courage to face into those uncomfortable conversations? And it's amazing what a trust piece of trust building work that is. When you oh, could yeah. sit down with someone and say, hey, this is not working for me. We got to talk about it. I'm scared to death of having this conversation because I don't know how you'll feel about it, but we got to do it. Mm-hmm. Man, that can deepen a conversation. Nine yeah. times out of 10, maybe 98 times out of 100. Every once in a while, you land on that slightly off-center person who isn't going to take it well. Yeah. But that ability to trust yourself to have those conversations, this is a, a, something I'm working on now with a, I'm trying to find a partner in academia, the concept of psychological safety. Yeah. yeah. It's generally, if you look at the literature out there, it's generally seen as the manager's responsibility, create an environment of psychological safety in your team. Mm-hmm. To me, individuals have a role in that as well. In other words, I have a personal I'm still playing with these ideas, so, mm-hmm. so bear with me. But there's a, a stance I have to take in order to be open to psychological safety, right? I can't sit back and say, all right, boss, make me feel psychologically <laughs> make, safe. Make me safe. Yeah. yeah, make me safe. And that word safe makes me nervous anyway, because people hear safe, and that means we have to be nice to each other. Yeah. Right? We, yeah. Have to be, we have to always avoid. avoid yeah, therefore, yeah. we become avoidant. And we don't have those those courageous conversations we need to have. And there's something in there about the individual psychological approach to psychological safety that says, I can feel psychologically safe because I know who I am. I know what my values are. I know I've been through tough situations before I can do it again. Whatever it may be, I I don't know what the elements are. And that's why I want to get some research done on it. Because organizations, and we've learned this through the pandemic of 2020, 2021, all of a sudden, just because doesn't mean you're anybody special. It's been a great equalizer, right? There's no head of the table anymore. There are no corner offices anymore. Yeah. The executive parking place is meaningless now. <laughs> All those trappings of power, this has flattened organizations to a yeah. great degree. And I can't keep looking to our bosses to make us feel okay. Yeah. How can we find our way to a kind of personal psychological safety that will yield this sort of courage that ultimately leads to the sort of trust everybody wants to feel in teams, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating concept. Carlos, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Start with my website. It is Carlos V. Depena, V as in Valdez, which is part of my last name. And Depena, I'll spell that one out because it's a bit unusual. D like David, A, P like Peter, E, N like Nancy, A, CarlosVDepena.com. That's my website. I'll make sure that the uh, URL is on the show notes here so people can <laughs> click through and get that information. I'm also I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. I'm on Facebook, but I'm most active on LinkedIn. That's where I share stuff that I find that's kind of cool and I want other people to get a look at. Perfect. I'll make sure the links are in the show notes. Super. 
This has been a pleasure, Carlos. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Bruce, thank you. I hope it didn't get too conceptual for us. <laughs> no, I think it was some good concepts. I think, you know, a lot of the folks listening to this program have kind of dealt with this issue in, in, in various ways. Yeah. And I think uh, it was a, a nice kind of fresh view of, you know, looking at some of these activities and really kind of focusing on the core things that are really going to move the needle in terms of team performance and teams collaboration. So I appreciate it. Well, again, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.